This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody this beautiful June evening or whatever time you're listening to this? This is going to be a lesson, like one of my academic lessons. And as you can see by the title, we're going to talk about personality disorders. But then, after I tell you what they are and describe them, we're going to talk about which ones of the personality disorders are most found in criminals. And I'll even mention a few famous criminals and criminals that we've talked about that have been diagnosed with specific personality disorders. So there's no disclaimer, no trigger warnings, not even going to swear. So pull up the kitties and everybody gather around. This is a purely educational episode. I took a, in grad school, I had a class on personality disorders. And there's a joke that says, when you're taking this class or when you're learning about all the personality disorders, you, you'll convince yourself that you have at least one of them. So <laughs> I uh, was seeing a, a therapist at the time, and I said to him, you know, I think I might have avoidant personality disorder. I thought he was going to, like, laugh at me and say, like, oh, you must be studying personality disorders. And he laughed, and he goes, I'd say you're the poster child for it. So, yeah, I have avoidant personality disorder, and we'll talk about that later. That's one of the rarer ones, actually, one you don't hear about too often, and also, fortunately, one that um, is not very much associated with criminals. So, as I go through the disorders and their characteristics and traits, you will probably find at some point, oh, I do that, or my husband does that, or my friend does that. That does not mean that you have the personality disorder. We all have all of these traits or most of these traits. It's only when you have, and I'll tell you the actual DSM criteria for diagnosing the disorder. It's only when it makes you like unable to function or unhappy or miserable that it becomes a disorder. So keep that in mind. But what we're going to talk about today, first, kind of obviously, is we're going to talk about what is personality. Then we'll go over all of the personality disorders, and they are arranged into what we call clusters. And in case you want to learn them or remember them, maybe like impress your friends with your knowledge of all the personality disorders, I'll try to give you little keys to remember them. And we'll talk about what types of personality disorders are most likely to coincide with criminal behavior. And like I said, some famous criminals and their disorders. So to start off, what is personality? I think we all kind of know that. It's, it's just kind of common sense. You may say something like, she has a very bubbly personality, or he has a very strange personality, or 
What attracted me to him was his great personality, like used in a general sense. Well, the actual definition is a distinctive set of traits, behavior styles, and patterns that make up our character and individuality. It's attitudes, thoughts, and feelings. And people with healthy personalities can cope with normal stresses and don't have trouble forming relationships with family, friends, and coworkers. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I actually know anybody with a healthy personality. I mean, I'm sure they exist, but it just seems like I don't personally know any. So a personality disorder is when you have an unhealthy, and that's like pretend I'm underlining that word, that's the key word is unhealthy, pattern of thinking, functioning, and behaving. You have trouble perceiving and relating to situations and people. Somebody with a personality disorder has problems in relationships, and that would be like personal relationships, friends, social activities, work, school, anything where you have to deal with people, they have trouble. Now, everything I've read says that most of them start showing in like teenage years or early adulthood, but this is one place where I'm going to personally differ with that and just say from my own personal observation that many personality disorders are available, are available, are obvious in childhood, or at least they start to kind of show up. And I know of people who have personality disorders, and I've known them when they were kids, and I know that they showed these traits as children. So maybe not everybody, and maybe not all of the disorders, but I think that at least some of them can appear in childhood. To be considered a disorder, it must cause distress or problems functioning, and it also must last over time. It can't be like a short spout of, like sometimes depression will crop up and somebody would be depressed for a while and then it'll go away. If you have a personality disorder, it's like ingrained in you. It's always with you for your whole life. But they say that most of them tend to kind of lessen in severity by the time the person reaches middle age. And as far as what causes personality disorders, you can probably guess at what the three theories are. One is that the person experiences things during their early childhood. And this can be like trauma, abuse, neglect, or just like a, a crappy family, you know, like a, a crappy environment. It doesn't have to be anything horrible. It can be maybe just like the way they're raised. The second is that they're genetically predisposed. And the third is a combination, that they are genetically predisposed to these behaviors, but it's the environmental factors, things that they experience in their lives, that actually causes the disorder. So you may be thinking... What is the difference between a personality disorder and a mental illness? And that is a very good question, and I will answer that right now. A mental illness, as defined by the National Institute of Mental Illness, is a 
health condition that changes a person's thinking, feeling, or behavior and causes them distress and difficulty in functioning. And the main mental illnesses are the most diagnosed, most commonly diagnosed mental illness is depression. I've also heard that it's anxiety disorders. And when I say, I say disorders because there are a number of disorders that fall under the anxiety umbrella. Anxiety is also said to be the most treatable of the mental illnesses. And the other ones would be bipolar, schizophrenia, ADHD, OCD, and PTSD. The big difference is that these are actual physical disorders, like there's something biomedically wrong with you, and you can actually see these, like literally see them on, not like an x-ray or CAT scan, because those are too simplistic, but some of the brain scans, like an fMRI or a PET scan, if you do of like a bipolar person, a schizophrenic person, somebody with PTSD, the brains actually look different. They light up different colors in different places. That's a fact. And it, it's pretty cool if you want to maybe Google that or something. It's estimated that 20% of the U.S. population has a mental illness, where personality disorders, it's said to be about 9% of American adults. In the world, the incidence of mental illness is given to be about 25%, so just a little bit more. A mental illness can develop in a short time, like just kind of come up out of nowhere, where, like I said before, personality disorders are lifelong. A mental illness is comparable to a physical illness, meaning it can be treated with medicine. Personality dis disorders can actually be considered risk factors for mental illnesses, some of them. And somebody with a personality disorder can live a, this is a key word here, seemingly normal life. They may not even be aware that they have a disorder. Where if you have a mental illness, you will probably know that something's wrong with you because you'll be miserable. If you're depressed, you probably are miserable. You probably know something's wrong. Same with PTSD, schizophrenia, bipolar, those things, anxiety. You know, you might not be able to say, oh, I have such and such, but you're probably unhappy, suffering, and you know that something is wrong. Where with a personality disorder... It's actually part of your personality. It's something that you've had all your life. You may not know that you have it. So we're going to learn the personality disorders by category. And they are grouped into three what they call clusters. Just in general, mental illness is increasing worldwide. In the last decade, we've seen a 13% increase in mental health conditions, and also substance abuse disorders. And I can't help but think that it's just that more people are being diagnosed, like more people are becoming aware of mental health problems and symptoms, and more people are seeking treatment, that it's that, that it, it's not just people are becoming more mentally ill. Do you 
understand that concept. Personally, I think that's what it is, but I don't know. I'm just guessing. Out of the personality disorders, the most often diagnosed is obsessive-compulsive, obsessive-compulsive personality. That is not obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, I'll talk about that later when we get to that one. In the whole world, it's said that 2 to 3% of people have a personality disorder. So, the clusters, they're cluster A, B, and C. And I'll give you a key word to remember each cluster, okay? Pretend I'm writing these down, or you can write these down if you want. Cluster A, the disorders are characterized by odd thinking and eccentric behavior. So, I like to think of the word odd, and I saw another little mnemonic device on Pinterest, actually, and they use words that start with W to remember them, and their word for the cluster A disorders is weird, so weird and odd. They're kind of similar. Cluster B, the disorders are characterized by dramatic and erratic behavior. And the key word here is, what's two words? Intense emotion. These are people that are emotional, volatile. Think of maybe a volcano. The W word associated with this cluster is wild. People that act wild. Their emotions may run wild. Finally, cluster C. And that one's marked by severe anxiety and fear. And anxiety is probably the key word to remember in that one. And the W word associated with this cluster is worried. These are people who worry a lot about things. So can personality disorders be treated? Yes and no. They're not like mental illnesses where, like I said, you give the person medicine and you see a marked response positive response because mental illnesses are literally problems with your brain chemistry. Since personality disorders aren't, they're a little bit harder to deal with. The main thing to do if somebody has a personality disorder is psychotherapy. Therapy or counseling is always good no matter what your problem is. You can discuss your moods and thoughts behaviors with your therapist, and therapy comes in both individual and group types. Depending on what your disorder is, there's also what you call social skills training or family therapy. There are medications used to treat personality disorders. There are no medicines approved by the FDA to specifically treat personality disorders. However, some symptoms of them may be treated. For example, antidepressants can be used for people with depressive moods, anger, impulsivity, and irritability. Mood stabilizers, which are usually used to treat bipolar disorder, which is a mental illness, can be used to even out mood swings, reduce irritability, impulsivity, and aggression. And finally, antipsychotic, or also called neuroleptics. 
They can sometimes be used to treat anxiety or anger and take it from me. Also, insomnia. There's a lot of them that are very good for insomnia. Also, anti-anxieties can help with anxiety, obviously, agitation, and insomnia. Sometimes personality disorders get so severe or intrusive that the person may need to be hospitalized or put in a residential treatment program. And it kind of goes without saying, one of the most basic ways to cope with these personality disorders is lifestyle changes. They always tell you the basic things like diet, exercise, sleep, stuff like that, which is kind of common sense, which you should do, but make treatment goals for yourself. Keeping a journal is very helpful. And what that allows you to do is, if you know what your personal obvious disorder is, like say it's dependent personality disorder, which we'll talk about, write down your feelings, thoughts, behaviors, and go over it once in a while and see if you can pick out the thoughts that are problematic or disruptive that pertain to your disorder, or go over your journal with your therapist. Learn as much as you can about your condition. That's kind of obvious also. And this goes for any disease, whether you have cancer or a mental illness or a personality disorder. So let's start out with cluster A. And remember, these are the odd and eccentric. This is the person that seems weird, for lack of a better term. There's three of these. They're paranoid, schizoid, and schizotypal. And the main challenge here is because schizoid and schizotypal sound so much alike, is telling the difference between those two. But we'll get to that, and I'll tell you what the main features are of each disorder. So paranoid personality disorder. I think we all know what paranoid is. And it is exactly what you think it is. The main feature of this disorder is a pattern of pervasive distrust and suspicion of others. You're always interpreting people as talking about you, thinking bad things about you. But the key word is they're really not. Sometimes, unfortunately, people do talk about you. but this is only when it's all in your imagination and your thoughts and it's not real. This usually begins in childhood and it affects an estimated 2 to 4% of Americans. It's basically the thought that everybody's out to get me. The child who has this disorder is usually solitary have trouble relating to other kids, don't have a lot of friends, suffer from social anxiety. They're hypersensitive to things like criticism. They have peculiar thoughts and language. These kids or young people may appear odd or eccentric. And it makes sense if uh, you think about it, why would you want to play with other kids if you thought that they all hate you, they want to beat you up, whatever. So that that kind of makes sense. If you're thinking that everybody 
hates you, everybody's talking about you, nobody likes you, you're not going to obviously have a lot of friends. This disorder is more common in males, and like I said, it's only a disorder when the paranoid traits are inflexible, maladaptive, and persistent, and cause significant functional impairment or distress. Again, the difference between is it a disorder or is it normal human behavior? Normal human behavior is every once in a while, you're out somewhere and you look over and you see a group of people looking at you and kind of laughing to themselves. And you think, I wonder if they're laughing at me or talking about me. That's normal. That's what people think. That's common to think that. If you think that all the time, or if it becomes a problem, like, um, I don't want to go anywhere because everybody's going to laugh at me and nobody likes me and everybody's going to talk about me behind my back. That's a problem. That's when it's causing you distress. So according to the DSM-5, in order to diagnose somebody with paranoid personality disorder, the person needs at least four of these features. The person suspects, and this phrase is the key, with no sufficient basis that others are exploiting them, harming them, or deceiving them. Number two, the person is preoccupied with unjustified, again, that's the key word is unjustified, doubts about the loyalty and trustworthiness of friends and associates. This person is by nature, very distrustful of people when they have no reason to be. Number three, the person is reluctant to confide in people due to a fear that the information will be used against them. This is somebody that's, just like it says, they're afraid to confide in friends, even a therapist. Uh, it's hard to get them to trust you and to op open up about their problems because they're afraid that what they tell you is going to be used against them somehow. Number four, this person finds hidden negative messages in benign remarks or events, like they misinterpret innocent things or comments that people do. The next one is they hold persistent grudges. They don't forget, they don't forgive anything like insults, injuries, anytime you hurt this person, maybe even not on purpose, maybe just accidentally, this is the type of person who always holds grudges for even the slightest thing. This person perceives attacks on their character or reputation that isn't obvious to others, meaning that it's probably imagined. They see insults or slights when there aren't any there. If the person is married or in a relationship, they have a constant suspicion that their partner is cheating on them. Remember that English girl we talked about, Shay Groves, it was, I don't know, a few weeks ago, she killed her boyfriend. Her and her boyfriend, I'm not saying that they had this disorder, I'm just giving you 
this behavior as an example of this. Remember how they were always looking each, at each other's phones to see if they were cheating, looking at the text and the chats and the whatever, convinced that the other person was cheating on them, which in this case they were. But somebody who does that, like looks at their partner's phone all the time, looking to see if they're cheating, when there really is no reason to be, that is a sign of this disorder. And also, in order to be diagnosed as the personality disorder, the paranoid behavior or thinking does not occur as part of schizophrenia or a psychotic disorder. Okay, the next disorder in this cluster is schizoid personality disorder. This one is pretty uncommon. About 3 to 4% of Americans are thought to have this. Similar to the one we just talked about, which is paranoid. It may appear in childhood. The kid may be solitary, not have any friends, have trouble keeping or making friends, and they may be an underachiever. It's also, like paranoid, slightly more common in males. Before diagnosing this as a disorder, the therapist or psychiatrist or whoever has to make sure it's not actually schizophrenia, which is the mental illness, or a delusional disorder. Also, some of the traits in this disorder are similar to those associated with autism or what we call autism spectrum disorder. So it's important to make sure that the person is not autistic. The difference, I don't want to get too much into autism because I think it was last year I did a whole, it was like a chat episode on what it's like to be autistic. So I won't get in too much into it, but I just want to say with autistic people, we have more impaired social interaction and the specific behaviors and interest, how we get obsessive with a certain interest, plus sensory, what we call sensory processing disorders. Like we are tend to be hypersensitive to noise, touch, light, stuff like that. So you can be a loner. You can just be, that's the way you are. But you only are seen as having the disorder if the traits are maladaptive and cause functional impairment or distress to the person. Again, it's only a disorder if it's causing you problems. The main feature of schizoid personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of, this is the key word here, detachment, detachment from social relations, and a restricted range of emotional expressions. This is the person who kind of looks and acts or maybe even talks like a robot, who just doesn't seem to have very many expressions. In order to diagnose somebody with this, you need four of the following, at least four of the following. The person doesn't want or desire close relationships, even with their own family. They just don't want to bother with people. They almost always choose solitary activities. This is a person who would rather watch TV by themselves, read by themselves, rather than 
have a conversation with another person or play a board game with their family. They have little or no interest in sex. They enjoy few, if any, activities. They have no close friends or associates. They seem indifferent to praise or criticism. Like if you praise them instead of saying, oh, thank you, and being happy that somebody praised them, they're just kind of like, eh. And if you criticize them, they don't really get mad or offended. They're just, again, it's like no emotional response. Emotionally, they're cold and detached, and they have what you call a flat affect, which is just like no expression. They often like mechanical or abstract tasks like computer games. They often don't respond appropriately to social cues. This is one that autistic people also do, so you got to be careful, or the whoever's diagnosing has to be careful that it's not autism. They say they rarely have strong feelings like joy or anger, but they may acknowledge painful feelings, particularly in relation to social interaction. Their life may seem directionless, like they have no goals. They are good at jobs that require no interaction with others. Like the perfect, one, perfect example of a good job for a schizoid person is an accountant. Because I don't really know much about accounting, but I think it's kind of a solitary thing where it's just you looking at your numbers. And it just seems to me that that would be a kind of job that they would be good at. Now, I can't diagnose people, obviously, and I have no idea if this person is or not, but I know somebody very well who I think really fits this example of schizoid personality disorder. And a perfect example is one time I asked him, as you just ask people, your friends and people you meet, whatever, what's your favorite color? And most people have a favorite color. They say, oh, it's purple or it's red. Or they may say something like, well, it's kind of a toss-up between green and orange. Like, I can't decide between those two. But what he said was he didn't have a favorite color. He And I said, how can you not have a favorite color? Everybody has a favorite color. And he said, well, they're just all the same to me. Like, I, I just don't prefer any of them over the other. And I was like, wow, that's that's unusual. I've never heard anybody say that. I could be totally wrong, but I'm just thinking that that is like a typical response to something that a schizoid-type person would say. Like, they just don't seem to have strong feelings about things or preferences about things. And these are some famous criminals, some of which we've talked about, that have been either diagnosed with or speculated to have schizoid personality disorder. I did not say these or I did not make these up. I got these from different sources online. And as usual, all the sources I use are in the show notes. But they are Lee Harvey Oswald. That's, of course, the uh, guy who killed President Kennedy. I actually very, know very little about him, or at least psychologically. Armin Mivas, 
remember we did talk about him, the um, guy in Germany who killed and ate the other guy, and John Jubert, who we talked about pretty recently. He, if you remember, was a serial killer. He killed three young boys. And just my own personal observation, this personality type disorder, I guess, just seems like it it would suck to have. It it seems like this would be a miserable way to live. Like if, if you didn't enjoy anything or you didn't have fun or you didn't like to do anything, it's like, well, wow, that really must be a uh, a miserable existence. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a schizoid, but I'm just curious about what life with that disorder would be like. Okay, so schizotypal personality disorder. This one is characterized by social and interpersonal deficits, acute discomfort with close relationships, cognitive and perceptual distortions, and eccentricities. You're going to see a couple major differences between this one and schizoid, and I'll point them out when we get to them. This one's pretty rare. Again, about 4 to 5% of people in the United States. This one may also be a precursor to schizophrenia. Like the last two that we just discussed, the other cluster A disorders, it may appear in childhood, and kids with this may seem solitary, lonely, have poor peer relationships, hypersensitive to things like criticism, underachievement. The hallmarks of schizotypal are peculiar thoughts and language and bizarre fantasies. These people appear odd or eccentric. As with all the cluster A, for whatever reason, it's more commonly seen in males. And this one, like schizoid, also may be confused with autism. So the difference in schizotypal from the other two cluster A disorders is the thinking and perceptual distortions and the very apparent strangeness of these people for lack of a better word. They also have a lack of desire for relationships. And the diagnostic criteria is at least five of the following. They have what's called ideas of reference. And what that means is they think things are directed at them or they're referencing them when they're really not. Like, for example, they might hear a song on the radio and they think that this song is being played at this particular moment for them, or it's somehow a message to them. They have odd beliefs, or what's known as magical thinking. What that means is they think that they have power. Like, when somebody has magical thinking, it means that they think that with the power of their thoughts, they can influence things around them. They may be preoccupied with superstition or paranormal things. And this does not mean that somebody who believes in 
so-called paranormal phenomena are schizotypal. It just means that this type of person is preoccupied with things of this nature, that they think about this stuff all the time. It's like a recurring theme with them, and they're, I guess, for lack of a better word, obsessed with it. They have unusual perceptual experiences, like bodily illusions. They have odd thinking and speech, and this is something that you don't need any kind of psychiatric or psychological training to recognize. You would just think, boy, that person talks very strange. For example, they are excessively vague or over-elaborate when they talk. They use strange words or maybe words that they make up. They are suspicious or paranoid. And again, it's when it's unwarranted, it's to a degree that's unhealthy. They have inappropriate or constricted affect, meaning they have strange reactions to things. This is something else that happens with autistic people. Like they will laugh inappropriately or cry inappropriately or have some kind of a an odd reaction. They'll have a lack of close friends or associates. This one is pretty specific. They have excessive social anxiety that doesn't diminish with familiarity. What that means is most people with social anxiety, which is pretty common, say they're nervous. They're going to a party and they're nervous and they get there and they're shaking and they're like, oh my God, I'm so nervous. I'm anxious. I hate parties. You know, I'm afraid people are going to talk about me or laugh at me or whatever. Usually this person with social anxiety over a period of time will start to calm down and relax and maybe even enjoy themselves. The schizotypal person will not. In fact, their anxiety may actually worsen the longer they're in the situation. And the final diagnostic criteria is that the person does not have schizophrenia or a psychotic disorder or autism spectrum disorder. These people are very or can be strange-looking, or they may have unusual mannerisms. They may appear unkempt. If you've ever read a, a psychiatric or psychological evaluation of somebody, which I have, one of the first things it will say is uh, patient or client, whatever, is a 32-year-old white female. She's appropriately dressed and groomed. If somebody's schizotypal, one of the things that the evaluation may say is, Patient is inappropriately dressed, meaning it's, um, say I wore a hockey jersey, which I wear a lot, but I also wore a long skirt and high heels with it. That'd be kind of strange. Or it's um, summer and a patient comes in dressed in a long fur coat. These are signs that uh, something's not quite right somewhere. And it is a, a symptom of schizotypal personality disorder. They also ignore social conventions like making eye contact or joining banter with coworkers. Again, 
this is something else that autistic people do. And probably the biggest thing with this one that makes them different from schizoids is they may say that they're unhappy and they want friends and relationships, but their behavior suggests otherwise. So these people secretly, or maybe not so secretly, really do want friends and relationships. Where the schizoid, it seems like they just don't want to have anything to do with anybody. So that, at least to me, seems the biggest difference between those two personality types. Now, cluster B. The cluster B personality types. The key word, the W word that goes with these is wild, and I use the symbol of the volcano. These people are very emotional. They're dramatic, they're overly emotional, they're unpredictable, and all of the disorders in this cluster are marked by unusual behavior and trouble with relationships. And with all of them, with all four of these types, the symptoms overlap. We saw this with the cluster A, but more so with this cluster, you're going to see the same symptoms and traits keep coming up. It seems that this type, the cluster B types, catch more attention in the media, like on the news, in movies, and TV shows, books, because these people are more dramatic. Their behavior is sort of a attention-seeking, look at me. As far as these people seeking treatment, at least as far as the narcissists go, we'll talk about narcissists in detail, but very few narcissists seek treatment, and you can probably figure out why. They think they're fine as they are. They don't see a need to go get themselves fixed. Those who do are usually asked to or urged to by a loved one. Evidence suggests that narcissists can be capable of growth and change, but it's usually a long, slow process. With therapy, with any of the cluster B personality disorders, the goal is to replace the maladaptive behavior patterns with more positive coping mechanisms. And as far as you, as far as just regular, just all of us, how to deal with people with cluster B personality disorders, because these people will all try to get your attention somehow. So here's how you deal with them. Modify your behavior and responses. You can't really change these people and what they do, but you can change or modify or control how you respond to them. Set boundaries with them. A lot of them have trouble with boundaries, especially the borderline and histrionic. So you may want to either keep them at a distance, like a healthy distance, or say to them, hey, these are the boundaries that I'm going to set with you. If they're having some kind of fit or tantrum or whatever, Leave them alone until they calm down. And don't antagonize or encourage negative behavior in them. 
The first one of these is antisocial personality disorder. I'm not going to get too into this because I did a whole um, lesson on this about maybe six months ago, and it was called Psychopaths versus Sociopaths. To refresh real quick, antisocial personality disorder is broken down into two subdivisions psychopathy and sociopathy. Remember, psychopaths are born, sociopaths are made. The percentage of people in the population with ASPD is probably like from about 0.2% to up to about 4%. But in prisons, substance abuse clinics, and other what they call forensic settings, the population is about 70%. So that tells you something very significant right there. By definition, this can't be diagnosed before the person's 18. And usually, fortunately, somebody with this, their traits and behaviors decline or at least stabilize by the time they reach middle age. It's much more common in males. And there are, as we're going to see, symptoms and traits that are similar to borderline narcissistic and histrionic personalities. I know that there have been many times that we've discussed criminals, whether they're murderers, rapists, whatever they are, and I'll tell you either this person has been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, or we'll say at the end when we talk about psychology, it really seems like this person is either a psychopath or sociopath. So there's that personality disorder. Okay, the next one is borderline personality disorder. And back when I was in college studying psychology, borderline was considered, well, a personality disorder, and it was considered to be a mix of narcissistic, histrionic, and dependent personalities. But in the meantime, I think like in the past few years, the psychology field has decided that borderline is actually a mental illness. So I guess they kind of upgraded it. It's described as a serious, long-lasting, and complex mental health problem. So it's a little more, I guess the word is serious, than the other personality disorders and that people who suffer from it know that there's something wrong and they are miserable and they do tend to seek treatment. It's defined as a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image and mood, and marked impulsivity. So people with borderline have a long history of trouble getting along with people, either in relationships, in their family, at work or school. They tend to have a negative self-image. They may have mood fluctuations, mood swings, and they do tend to be very impulsive. This one's a little more common, anywhere from like 2 to 6% of people in the U.S. Worldwide, that percentage is like 1%. I don't know really what the difference would be. 
but among psychiatric inpatients, like people in mental hospitals, the figure is about 20% with borderline personality disorder. Like people with ASPD, it tends to decrease in severity with age, meaning the person tends to mellow out in middle age or older age. 75% of those diagnosed with borderline are female. And what distinguishes it from the other personality disorders is the self-destructiveness. These people are really into self-destructive behavior or self-harm. Angry disruptions in close relationships. They like, I, I, don't, I don't know if like is the proper word, have a tendency to start arguments and trouble with family members, partners, etc. And chronic feelings of loneliness. If they feel that they've been abandoned, they react very severely. They feel very empty and they all may also feel rage and make demands of the person who they think has abandoned them. And the abandonment can be real or imagined. This disorder usually shows by early adulthood. The person generally can't tolerate being alone. They're very, what you would call, needy. And they tend to fall in love with people or form attachments to people very fast. Like, by a second date, they may think they're in love with somebody. They're easily bored and seek stimulation. They seek excitement. They may make sudden changes in their opinions and plans about their career, their sexual identity, values, and friends. They tend to have a pattern of undermining themselves. Some people with this disorder, if they're under a lot of stress, they may experience symptoms that are similar to psychosis. They tend to have a pattern of not staying at a job very long. And in order to be formally diagnosed, according to the DSM, you have to have five or more of these. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships. Identity disturbances. What that means is a bad self-image or sense of self. Impulsivity. And that just doesn't mean general impulsivity. It has to be impulsivity that is potentially self-damaging, like excessive spending, sexual behavior, substance abuse, or reckless driving. Recurrent suicidal behavior or threats of suicide or self-mutilation. Intense mood or mood changes. Chronic feelings of emptiness. Inappropriate intense anger and difficulty controlling anger. This would be somebody who you would describe as a hothead or somebody who has temper tantrums. And finally, paranoid thoughts or dissociation. What dissociation is, it's kind of hard. I mean, it's, it's not hard to describe. I can tell you what the words are that describe it. 
But unless you've experienced it, it's it's hard to understand what it is. It's like a a dreamlike, foggy state, and I've actually had it. Sometimes when I get really, really bad panic attacks, I'll kind of dissociate, and it's hard to describe. I think the words dreamlike and foggy are about as close as I can come to describing it. It it almost feels like you're split off from yourself or watching yourself or sort of, or you feel like unreal or you feel like you're dreaming. It's a very uncomfortable, creepy state. And apparently it's common in people with borderline personality disorder. Some things that may occur with it are depression, bipolar disorder, substance abuse, eating disorders, PTSD, and ADHD. Okay, the next personality disorder to talk about is, in my opinion anyway, maybe the simplest, the easiest to explain and understand. We're still in cluster B, by the way. This one is histrionic, and the easiest way to remember this one is drama queen. This is your drama queen, your, as I like to say, attention whore, the person who always needs to create drama. People like this, to me personally, are very annoying. It's said that about 2% of the population is histrionic, and it's much more popular, or it's much more diagnosed in females. The main feature is emotionality and attention-seeking. So that's pretty obvious. These people are very emotional, and they are over-emotional. They cry. They are dramatic. They want attention, either good attention or bad attention. This is usually obvious by early childhood. When somebody is histrionic, you can usually tell they're usually like this as a child also. So these are the diagnostic criteria. You need five or more of these. One, they want to be the center of attention. That's pretty easy to explain. Number two, they are inappropriately seductive or provocative. And the key word here is inappropriately. I think we all know what seductive or provocative means, but these people do it when and where and with who they shouldn't. Say, for example, I don't know, at a funeral or among married people or just an inappropriate situation. I, I think you know what I'm talking about. Number three, they have shallow emotions. Number four, they use their appearance to draw attention. And this is not like in the schizotypal, where, remember I said they might have odd appearance, like they would come to see a psychiatrist dressed in an evening gown and a fur coat. This isn't like that. This is like, um, and again, I'm not being sexist, but because it's most common in women and it's just an easy example, say a woman goes on a job interview and she has on a deep plunging neckline with her boobs hanging out in a very short skirt 
and she's just dressed very sexual. Men can do this also. But the main thing is they somehow use their appearance to attract attention. They want people to look at them. Number five, their style of speech is impressionistic or lacking in detail. In other words, it's hard to have a, um, like a serious, deep conversation with them. Just like their emotions are shallow, their thought processes and speech is also shallow. The next one is, this is very obvious, easy to explain, their theatric and their mannerisms and speech are exaggerated. Think just somebody acting on a stage. They dramatize the way they talk and they their gestures because they're in a play and they're being dramatic. They're playing a role. Histrionic people are like this all the time. The next one is they're suggestible. They're easily influenced by others. And finally, they consider relationships more intimate or serious than they actually are. For example, they meet somebody and they're attached to them. They're in love. And the other person's like, whoa, this is our second date. Slow down. These aren't diagnostic requirements. But just in general, this type of person may fish for compliments. You know how you do that? Like, um, oh, this dress makes me look fat. And that's a cue for the other person or, or somebody else present to say, oh, no, no, you don't look fat at all, or no, you look great, or, you know, something along those lines. They are apt to have an excessive display of public emotion, like a temper tantrum. They may be manipulative. They demand constant attention from friends, relatives, whoever they're with. They're, they're just draining to be around because they suck your energy, it seems like. They just want, Nathan's like this, but he's a pug, so he's allowed. But as in a human, it's not cute or endearing at all. It's very annoying. They may use suicidal gestures for attention. The actual suicide rate of people with this disorder is not known, but... They are likely to say, and not mean it, oh, I'm going to kill myself, or I think I'll go hang myself, and it's, it's just for attention. But you have to be careful with that, because some people may really mean it, and you, you have to be careful in interpreting, well, is it a gesture for attention, or is it an actual thing? And just as a general rule of thumb... If somebody says something like that, always take it seriously, just in case, because you don't know, and, you know, just to be on the safe side. This disorder may, may co-occur in people who are borderline, narcissistic, antisocial, or dependent. And the last one, the last dis disorder of the cluster B should be pretty well known. You should know just by the name what it entails. It's narcissistic. I think we all know what a narcissist is. The name comes from Narcissus of Greek myth, 
This is the dude who fell in love with his own reflection. Now, everybody is, by nature, a little bit narcissistic. If you think about it, you should love yourself. You kind of have to in order for your psyche to survive. But again, it's only a disorder when it becomes disruptive or it causes you problems getting along with people. This one is mostly found in males. It tends to be prevalent in teens. However, a lot of them outgrow it. I think if you look back on yourself as a teenager, it just seems like a lot of us were narcissists or you're into yourself at that time just because you're growing up and it just seems to kind of come along with adolescence. The way that you determine narcissists from the other cluster B disorders is grandiosity, a relative lack of self-destructiveness. This person loves themselves. They think they're beautiful and they're wonderful. So the last thing they would do is hurt themselves, put themselves down, something of that nature. They tend to be impulsive and they tend to have abandonment concerns. They need attention like the histrionic people, but for these people, it can't just be any attention, good or bad, will do. No, it has to be positive. It has to be admiring. They want people to admire them. They also tend to have lack of empathy because they're so much wrapped into themselves that it's hard for them to look outside themselves. So to be diagnosed with the narcissistic personality disorder, you need five or more of these. Number one, they think they're special and unique. Number two, they have a sense of entitlement. Rules don't apply to them. They think they're above laws, above rules. Number three, they lack empathy. Number four, they're envious of others, especially things that other people have, like nice clothes or a nice car. Number five, they're preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or love. And the key word here is preoccupied. I think all of us, at least healthy people, fantasize about success, power, um, being beautiful and being loved. That, that's just human nature. But the key word is preoccupation. Number six, they need excessive admiration. They need to be told, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You're so beautiful. And that can be really hard for somebody who's trying to deal with a narcissist. Number seven, they have a grandiose sense of self-importance. Number eight, they take advantage of others. And number nine, they have arrogant or haughty behavior or attitude. I think we all know what that means. They think they're Poop doesn't stink is a saying that we use around here. Some famous narcissists, and these are not ones that I made up. I found these online, although I don't think I can disagree with any of them. Madonna, Donald Trump, 
Kim Kardashian, Jim Jones, that's the uh, the cult leader. And just by definition, I think all cult leaders are narcissists. If you think about it, I, I think they kind of have to be. And Kanye West. So now we're going to talk about the last one. And for whatever reason, um, maybe I'm delusional. I thought this was going to be a short episode. Okay, now we're going to talk about the Cluster C personality disorders. These are the ones, they call them the anxious, fearful cluster. There's three of them here. And these ones may make the person who has them miserable. They may be distressed. They have trouble with relationships. All of these disorders are characterized by anxiety, fear, and doubt. And it impacts the person's relationships and self-esteem. The way you treat them is therapy and maybe medication. And this cluster is the most likely to benefit from CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. So the types are avoidant. This one's pretty rare, about maybe 2% of the population. And this is the one that I have, so I can, I'm the most familiar with this, and I can talk about this from my own personal point of view. I can guarantee this part here that it does start in infancy or childhood. The child who has avoidant personality disorder is shy. They isolate themselves. They're afraid of new people and situations. This one is a little bit unusual, this disorder, is that it appears equally in males and females. And I think that's the only one of the personality disorders that is equal in males and females. It often overlaps with anxiety disorder, especially social anxiety disorder and agoraphobia. You can have all of them at once. Both the avoidant person and the dependent person, which we'll talk about next, show feelings of inadequacy, hypersensitivity to criticism, and a need for reassurance. And remember, this is called avoidant personality disorder, and the primary feature of it is avoidance. These people want to avoid everything. That's how they deal with things. That's like our go-to way to cope with problems. Stick your head in the sand, avoid, avoid, avoid. It's kind of like um, our motto should be, why do today what you can avoid? I know it's kind of making fun of it, but if it'll help you understand it. What we are really trying to avoid is humiliation and rejection. We want to have relationship with others, but we avoid it because we're afraid of rejection or humiliation. The essential feature of this disorder is a pervasive pattern of social inhibition, feelings of inadequacy, hypersensitivity to negative evaluation. That means criticism. If somebody says something to us that we take as criticism or a negative 
statement or an insult, most people, most people with a healthy personality can just brush it off. With us, it just sticks and sticks and sticks and drives us crazy. These people tend to be shy, quiet, and inhibited. And the opposite of the two that we just talked of, the narcissist and the histrionic who crave attention, we hate attention, especially negative attention. We hate being the center of attention. Other diseases or disorders that can be confused with avoidant personality disorder are bipolar, anxiety, depression, and the cluster A disorders. So in order to diagnose somebody with avoidant personality disorder, you need four or more of these. One, the person avoids occupational activities that involve significant interpersonal contact because of fears of criticism, rejection, or disapproval. And that's just what it says. When they're at work, they avoid interacting with people or having interpersonal relationships because they're afraid they'll be criticized. The second one is they're unwilling to get involved with people unless they're certain that they're going to be liked. And that's hard because, I mean, of course, there's no certainty with anything, especially whether or not somebody's going to like you. Number three, they show restraint with intimate relationships. That's pretty obvious. Number four, they're preoccupied with being criticized or rejected in social situations. Number five, they are inhibited in new interpersonal situations due to feelings of inadequacy. That's, that's just kind of the same theme. The next one is they see themselves as socially inept or inferior to others. Whether or not they are or not, they may be socially inept or backwards, but the key word there is they see themselves as. And lastly, they are unusually reluctant to take personal risks or engage in activities that may be embarrassing. So, perfect example, I don't know, you're uh, in school or you're in some group in an audience and somebody is, perform I don't know, a, a magician on stage and they're like, can I have a volunteer from the audience? Somebody with avoidant personality disorder is the least likely to raise their hand and say me because they don't want attention. They don't like people looking at them or talking about them or they don't want to be the source of entertainment or the butt of a joke. If, I, I think it's pretty easy to understand. Famous people with this, and I am not familiar with any of these people. I mean, I know who they are, but that's the end of it. So I have no opinion on whether or not they are. Like I said, these are from online. Are Kim Basinger, Donnie Osmond, and Michael Jackson. Okay, we're almost at the end. Dependent personality disorder. Pay attention to this one because the next case that we do, I think that the offender or the main offender in the case suffered from this one. It's kind of what it says. 
I think we know what the word dependent means. You're dependent on somebody, dependent on people. This one is pretty rare with about 1% of the population, and it's diagnosed more in females. This person is noticeable by their predominantly submissive, reacting, and clinging behavior. Keyword, clinging. And I think we can all think of somebody who's clingy. They exhibit intense neediness. Somebody who's, I think you can probably think of somebody you know, very needy and clingy. If they're abandoned or like real um, or imagined, they react with appeasement and submissiveness. Like, please, please don't leave me. I'll do, I'll, I beg, beg you, please stay. Please don't leave me. I'll do whatever you want. I'll change. If you don't like, you don't like my blonde hair, I'll dye it. What color do you want me to dye it? Green? Fine. I have green hair. Like that kind of person. They have a pattern of seeking and maintaining connections. And they have a pervasive and excessive need to be taken care of that leads to clinging behavior and fears of separation. They want somebody to take care of them. This one begins in early adulthood, although I kind of see it starting earlier. But I guess when you're a kid or you're a teenager, you still are a child. You you still do need parenting or taking care of. So maybe it's not really that obvious until you reach adulthood. To be diagnosed with dependent personality disorder, you need five or more of these. Difficulty making everyday decisions without advice. You're going to buy a new appliance. You can't just pick one. You have to call five different people and get their opinion. Number two, they need others to assume responsibility for most major areas of their life. They just don't want to take responsibility for themselves. Number three, they have trouble expressing disagreement because they fear the loss of support or approval. Basically, they're afraid to, to say no, to tell people no, because they are afraid, well, if, if I tell him no, then he won't like me anymore. Or if, if I say no to her, she won't want to be my friend anymore. Number four, they have problems initiating projects or doing things on their own. They lack confidence in their own judgment. They go to excessive lengths to get nurturance or support. And the key word here is excessive lengths. Everybody wants support. Everybody wants nurturance. But these people just go overboard with it. This, to me, I would say this is the biggest one here. They feel helpless and uncomfortable when they're alone. A lot of us like being alone. I love being alone well, because I'm avoidant. A lot of people don't like being alone. They get lonely. But these people, when they're alone, they just lose their, you know what, like they can't cope with being alone. If they have a relationship that ends, namely a romantic relationship, they can't stand having that empty space. They need to hurry up, go out, and find a replacement for this person. 
And finally, they have an unrealistic preoccupation with fears about taking care of themselves. Like, I think we all, I don't know about we all, but as you get older, you think, oh, what's going to happen to me when I'm like 85? And what if I get senile? Like, who's going to take care of me or what's going to happen to me? I think those are thoughts that we all have. But these people, it's like on their mind all the time. There's one more. And this one is actually the most prevalent of all the personality disorders, even more so than narcissistic. And it is obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. So first, I have to explain the difference between obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is OCD, and OCPD, which is the personality disorder. They both involve unwanted and intrusive thoughts and compulsive behavior. OCD, which is the disorder, is, as you can probably guess, the worst of the two. It's considered a mental illness. It actually interferes with the person's ability to function. These are the people that, like, stereotypically take 20 showers a day, do the routines and the rituals. They have irrational obsessions followed by the compulsions. And they spend a lot of their time doing these rituals, which really does make these people miserable and unhappy. If you have the personality disorder, which is like the mild form, your thoughts and urges focus more on rigidly maintaining your daily life tasks. So it's more um, of a focus on tasks and doing things and keeping things in a certain way. This one is twice as common in males. And this is the person with the type A personality. They're obsessed with work, timeliness, orderliness, competitiveness. The key word for these people is control. They must have control over everything at all times. They're preoccupied with being orderly, perfectionism, mental and interpersonal control. And this one usually begins by early adulthood. To diagnose this one, you need four more of these. First is preoccupation with details, rules, lists, and organization. This is one of those people who makes lists all the time, and they're everywhere, and they're really obsessed with checking off their lists. Number two, they're perfectionist, but the perfectionism interferes with actually doing the things, with completing the tasks. They're so worried about getting something done perfectly that they might not even get the thing done at all. Number three, they're excessively devoted to work and productivity. Number four, they're overconscientious, inflexible, especially regarding morality and ethics. Number five, they can't get rid of old stuff, kind of like hoarders do. Six, they are reluctant to delegate tasks at work. That means they just rather do something themselves because they know it's going to get done right. I know a lot of people like that. 
And again, on its own, that's not such a big deal. It's only when it's combined with all these other things that it becomes the disorder or becomes a problem. Number seven, they are very miserly with spending and they hoard money. And eight, they tend to be rigid and stubborn. Oh, it's pretty simple. Okay, there's one more, kind of. You may come across, I've, I know I've seen it, something called unspecified personality disorder. What this means, put very simply, is the person has symptoms characteristic of a personality disorder, meaning they have distress or impairment, but they don't have enough of these to match the criteria for any one of the personality disorders. And whoever's making the diagnosis doesn't have enough information to make the diagnosis. Remember with each disorder, I said, okay, you need four of these or five of these. Well, you see this person has, there's something wrong. They're not happy. They're having trouble with relationships. You can tell there's something wrong, but they don't have enough of the criteria for any one of the disorders to call it that particular disorder. So then you just say unspecified. I know it's pretty unhelpful. So which personality disorders do you think are the most associated with crime? What do you think that criminals are most likely to have as far as these disorders? Go ahead, yell them out. Not surprisingly, studies show that criminals who have personality disorders are, mo are most likely to have ASPD, meaning psychopaths and sociopaths, to nobody's surprise, and borderline personality disorder. You've probably heard me mention in many past episodes when we talk about psychology that, in my opinion, I think it sounds like this person is either a psychopath, a sociopath, or a borderline. Or I would say that this person fits the diagnostic criteria for one of these personality disorders. In 1984, and I know that's kind of old, but I think the results would be similar if it was done today. A study of criminals found that offenders showed higher impulsivity, lower anxiety, and greater hostility. And the personality disorders that describes that are borderline with the higher impulsivity, antisocial, especially with the sociopaths, the higher impulsivity, and of course the hostility that's related to antisocial also. A study in Iran in 2017, studied 228 prisoners, and the researchers found that at the time that they committed their crime, 87% of the female prisoners and 83% of the male prisoners had a personality disorder, and they found that the most common personality disorders that these people had at the time they committed their crimes were antisocial, borderline, and dependent. 
the last one, Dependent, that was kind of a surprise, to be honest. But Iran is a totally different culture from what I think a lot of us know. And their crime, their criminals may be different from ours, if, if you know what I'm getting at. But the first two, antisocial and borderline, those were right on with all the rest of the studies that I've read about. Wow, that was a long one. So who thinks they have a personality disorder now? I'm just curious. Um, next episode, I don't know when it's going to be out. It's an interesting one. I'm reading a book on it right now. It's a crazy story. It has all these people in it. It's kind of like a soap opera. And like I said, the main person really sounds like a dependent personality disorder to me, at least among other things anyway. But I guarantee you it'll be interesting. It might be more than one part. Okay, so I will see you then. Class dismissed. <laughs>